Hello, and welcome to Relay SA. Episode 1 of Season 6. Yes. Uh, Relay SA is a podcast that features a connected conversation about student affairs in Canada. Uh, each person that we interview recommends or refers us to other colleagues across um, student affairs, and they pass the baton, and um, we interview each person, and creating a relay race of interviews. It's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> um, and this person we've got for our season premiere for season six is Marsha Guno, who works out at SFU, and uh, we got Marsha's name from two different folks. So Aaron Biddlecombe and Tracy Mason Ennis both gave us Marsha's name to interview, and both times, both people, when they suggested her name, they said in different ways, that every time they speak with or connect with Marsha, they always learn something. And mm. I feel like that is very true for the conversation I had with her okay. for this interview. So I'm very excited for people to hear what we spoke about. Let's take a listen. I will declare that I'm not the type to have any yes. It's worth all the shares. The number one podcast student affairs. Want to hear what they have to say. Along with all the guests that have been on the way. Without further delay, it's me, they. All right, so we're recording. Um, do you want to tell me your name? My name is Marsha Guno. I am the director of the Indigenous Student Center at Simon Fraser University. And how long have you been in that role, Marsha? Uh, that's I've been in the role currently for four years, and um, prior to that, I was in the role for three years. Uh, approximately in, I'm going to say, 2004 to 2006 or so. Okay. And then I was a student at SFU prior to that, uh, completing my bachelor's degree here in 1996 and my master's degree in 2001. Okay, so let's let's start at the very beginning <laughs> of your SFU journey. So uh, what brought you to SFU? Um, I actually uh, was very interested in coming to SFU uh, as a transfer student, a mature transfer student okay. from Capilano College uh, at the time, now Capilano University, located in North Vancouver. Um, and I wasn't entirely sure of what area I wanted to study as a student, but I knew that I liked the history of SFU and uh, it was a place that I was really interested in, in being a student. And what were you studying? I was doing, uh, for my undergrad, I, I wasn't a declared major upon entry. I was taking a number of general arts, and I was interested in psychology as an early uh, starter in college, but then I quickly found that wasn't a match to my learning style and my, um, wasn't an area that I was excelling in. Um, and it was when I arrived at SFU that I came into courses and content that involved Indigenous history and perspectives. And that discipline at the time was within the area of anthropology. So I ended up doing a double major for my undergrad in sociology and anthropology and continued directly from my undergrad right into my master's, uh, again in uh, the arts um, and within anthropologists as my supervisor and did my master's research looking at what Indigenous students go through in post-secondary education. Yeah, I was kind of geeking out preparing for this interview, and I found a copy of your thesis. Oh, um, oh my gosh. And in the spirit of sharing, honoring First Nations education experiences. Yes. So I was, can you tell me a little bit about the process of writing what, sure. what at first glance seems to be like a really, um, really kind of, uh, really interesting thesis to take on? that topic because what I found when I was an undergrad was there was conversations that students, First Nation students, Indigenous and Métis students, um, and I were having as, as students uh, navigating a large institution together. This was over 20 years ago um, when there wasn't uh, really, reconciliation wasn't even a topic of conversation 20 gotcha. years ago. Yeah. Indigenization was not even on the vocabulary uh, 20 years ago. Um, so there's quite a different struggle and quite a different um, uh level of uh, a number, sorry, of, of students that were Indigenous ancestry on campuses. We at our campus were quite far and in between. This is also a time when there wasn't really, I'm really dating myself here, but there's also a time <laughs> when there wasn't really, you know, when you think about it, no internet to, 
stay connected. Right. So how do you build a community without those opportunities for social media groups or for email or... Um, so we had a space on campus and we um, we communicated through a book we had written uh, notes to each other when we had different class schedules but wanted to stay connected so we had the binder and we just write notes to each other in this binder and check it out when we went into our student space. Um, and then as an undergrad, I was able to uh, find an amazing professor who I really uh, loved working with, Dr. Dara Colleen. And uh, I took on a project um, in the latter part of my undergrad, and actually the project was an interview, an open interview with uh, four or five other Indigenous students, just inviting the students to talk about their experiences in education. And that led to my thesis topic because it was just an incredible opportunity. It was my first time conducting an interview um, and transcribing and developing questions and conducting that work within an Indigenous context um, of sharing reciprocity, respect, um, having food when we met, uh, allowing participants to review the material and fully edit it, uh, ensuring their voice was represented in a way that they felt comfortable using um, whether they wanted to use a, a pseudonym or not or to be identified, that led to my master's thesis topic. So before I entered my master's program, um, I knew the topic I was passionate about. Okay. I also knew that the topic was one where I was often in conversations with non-Indigenous allies, colleagues, friends, and the conversation always led back to what is it that Indigenous students are going through in post-secondary? And I realized that there was a gap of knowledge there. So in a small way, I'd hoped that my project would help to create a space for that voice to be heard, create a space for diversity of Indigenous voices, and to hopefully fill a little bit of a gap to help understand what Indigenous students go through in post-secondary to help improve that experience. And for institutions, you know, that were involved or engaged or might have read the work or to have maybe even space for students to pursue this in their goals also. So good. And I, I, I mentioned that your master's is, is findable because I think sometimes folks lament that we don't have a lot of easily accessible Canadian scholarship um, about what's going on in our campuses. And I think you don't have to look too hard to find really great examples of great research um, that speaks to some of our student experiences. Well, thanks for saying that, and I agree with you, because there has been, I mean, before, you know, certainly there was a lot of work happening before my thesis, of course. There's quite a few, uh, you know, amazing Indigenous scholars across Canada that have done, you know, the groundbreaking work and really had to, I can't imagine, you know, what they were dealing with as academics at that time. Right. You know, being isolated and, and or, you know, being the only one in perhaps a department of faculty trying to help raise an awareness. Um at a time when this was not even on the conversation or on the radar. So right. um, absolutely, I agree with you. There's been some incredible, you know, and there continues to be amazing, incredible Indigenous um, works out there that are amazing. Well, and I, it sounds like when you're talking about creating these spaces for sharing and, and um, advancing um, understanding, it also sounds like that's kind of what you do in your day job. So is that <laughs> is that accurate? Absolutely, and I, you know, I have to say I'm I'm incredibly privileged to be in a field of work that is about my core passion. Uh, my passion is, I believe, very strongly in supporting Indigenous students. I believe very strongly in supporting Indigenous education and the advancement of Indigenous education. I believe very strongly in ensuring that uh, these large colonial institutes that we work in um, that still have that history and that still have that learning uh, and comprehension to understand Canadian colonial history. Many institutions are at varying levels of this journey. Sure. I, I am, I'm appreciative of the work that's underway by Indigenous and our allies that are working towards a better day um, for all of our Canadian citizens, including Indigenous uh, students and scholars. I, I'm very lucky to work in a field that I'm very passionate about. Um, I, the, the work I get to do in the centre is to support and witness and and be around Indigenous students and, and provide Indigenous supports as we can, cultural supports as we can, holistic support and uh, to help that student in whatever way they may feel that they need support. That sounds like no easy feat. So how do you, how do you go about your day-to-day? -day? How do you um, work towards the goals that you have for yourself and your centre? 
Well, I certainly feel uh, grateful for um, the colleagues that I work with here within the Indigenous Student Centre. We have an amazing team of amazing um, uh, team members and staff that work with us. Uh, we have two Indigenous uh, counsellors that are uh, certified um, to provide uh, counselling support to students. Um, we've created this in partnership, so a lot of the work we've done in the centre, um, some of our initiatives are in partnership with other units across SFU. So okay. that takes time and work and innovation and dedication and um, thinking outside the box. And so I'm really grateful for my colleagues um, both inside the uni this Indigenous Student Centre but also the units outside that we've developed partnerships with. And one of them is the Health and Counselling Centre of SFU. So um, it took us a couple of years, but we managed to, in two or three years, now have uh, two uh, um, Indigenous counsellors working uh, in the Indigenous Student Centre here, and they have a we have a shared responsibility in ensuring that the counsellors achieve and sorry have the support that they need in terms of the clinical support. So that's. Uh, directly uh, being coordinated and supported by the health and counseling team, and then also that they have the the uh, team support that they need over there. But they also they work directly out of the Indigenous Student Centre. So, the uh, all of the technology that they need to um, upload and, and do their confidential notes are all managed by the health and counseling centre okay. and uh, and coordinated with our centre. But uh, it's it's all exactly following all the protocols about confidentiality. Um, so that's one great opportunity that we have here. We also have elders and residents. So we have elders that come and be with our students um, a couple of times a week. Um, we provide lunch. Uh, we have a common area kitchen in our center. Food security and having dignity around having food is really important. So we have uh, a kitchen where we have access to um, some basic foods that students can help themselves to. Um, and grab a cup of coffee in the morning, make themselves a bagel or some yogurt or some fruits or granola, and or make a sandwich if they need to. We're very lucky to have those opportunities here. We also have two student life coordinators, and uh, one area is on the academic um, supports. And um, so we have a partnership with the um, uh, the, uh, the library, which offers a number of workshops on student, student life skills, studying tips, exam, uh, management. So those facilitators will actually come and deliver those workshops in our student center here. Um, and the facilitators know our students well. We often make sure lunch is provided and, and we have a great working relationship to have those workshops happen here. We often, we will try to offer as many supports as we can in our space because this is where our students feel comfortable and safe. And um, so we also have academic advisors that come and do drop-in hours here, financial aid advisors. Um, we also have a tutoring support, uh, so if a student uh, needs to log in on our website and they need support for tutoring, we can help get them connected and we'll help cover the fees for that for 13 uh, weeks of tutoring, which is the equivalency of a, of a uh, semester. Okay, wow. We also have a peer cousin program that parallels our other peer programs on campus. I feel like I'm forgetting things. Oh, and we do a number of cultural workshops. So we have... Um, what we call uh, cultural connections, which is typically on a Friday afternoon. And this is where we will bring off-campus uh, Indigenous Métis facilitators to come in and do a variety of different types of cultural activities and workshops with the students. And we supply the resources and materials needed. And that's really led to some amazing transformational connections of community and, and connections between the students and the staff and the talent of the students, the, the items they're making, moccasins, drums, beading. It's, we have a really strong beading community, and it's really cool to see the students come in and just sit down and take a break from their studies and just start working on something with their hands. Oh, that sounds incredible. <laughs> I, that just sounds amazing, and it sounds like um, really looking at the whole, the whole student. Like, it's, mm -hmm. it's every single element is, is taken care of and looked after. Yeah, we also have um, uh, uh, developed a, a Indigenous cultural house on campus. And so this has been a partnership with Residence and Housing. And so two semesters, two years ago actually now, we, um, we 
decided that it would be a great opportunity. Students actually brought us a proposal for an idea, and uh, we were actually in development of a different but similar idea, and we decided, let's go with this. So it's basically a townhouse uh, in the first year where Indigenous students that self-selected to want to live in a community together um, uh, decided we provided supports and, and programming around it, and, uh, and it's expanded now to two townhouses and this fall we're looking to expanding to a wing of one of our, um, ta our lower buildings so we're actually going to 22 rooms and so um, this has been also a really amazing opportunity to work with residents and housing uh, students can opt to have their rooms uh, culturally cleansed with smudging if they want and this was a really big learning curve for both residents and housing and us um, and how we worked really hard together to help make this happen because I'm sure you can imagine there's a number of things that need to take place such as um, turning off the fire alarm system. Oh yeah, oh my gosh. Working with facilities on campus, making sure that resident community partners and, and, and residents in the area knew what was happening and, and then providing that opportunity. But we've done it every year um, and the students really appreciate it. So yeah, I'm really proud of the work we get to do here. It's an amazing group that I get to work with. That sounds incredible. And it sounds like you're very responsive to kind of emerging ideas and needs and also really reaching across all the different partners on your campus um, to make sure that the programs get to where they need to go. Yeah, we, I would say, you know, one of the strengths of the work that we do of, is that we really sit, we have town hall meetings with our students. So we invite the students to come into the center. We do this after hours, so it's kind of uninterrupted. And so we have a dinner, the staff will participate and the students. And we provide updates to the students and then we invite the students to provide us updates or feedback. And so a lot of our programming and a lot of these great ideas really do come from the students that we serve. And we're just in a great position and, and, and with great partners across campus to just say, hey, let's try and make this happen. You know, what can we do here? And is this something we can make happen? And, and often, it, luckily so far, has been we've been pretty successful at, at pulling things together. And really it is, I'd have to say, the, the wisdom and the strength of our students and their willingness to give us their feedback that really helps us shape out what we need to provide to students. That sounds that sounds just amazing. And I, I like I said when I was doing my research, it was I came across um, a program that sounded amazing, and I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about strengthening connections. Oh, okay. Uh, you have done your research. <laughs> when I worked here, when I worked here, um, ten years ago, I was in the role initially as the program coordinator for the then called First Nations Student Centre. Uh, it was the Student Support Centre uh, on campus um, 10 years ago. And so the second year I moved into becoming the first Indigenous recruiter at SFU. And while I was working in recruitment, uh, I observed that there was a gap uh, in provincial recruitment in British Columbia. There is the regular outreach recruitment that happens between post-secondary institutes and all public uh, schools in the province of British Columbia. When I was a recruiter, I was observing that these were great and really well-organized and well-attended workshops that basically recruiters are going out every year. So students in provincial schools were getting up-to-date information every year on how to apply to university, what were your options, and, and what the process was like. What I observed in this process was that, and I asked the question, do these uh, work recruitment initiatives go on to on-reserve areas? And I learned that they did not. Mm. So I managed to successfully submit a proposal uh, through SFU to the province of British Columbia to receive $25,000 of funding to initiate a pilot, and the pilot was Strengthening Connections. And so the goal of Strengthening Connections was to work in collaboration with four regions of British Columbia. We identified four key institutes throughout the province, in the north, the interior, the south, and the island, and we had leads from each of those areas that were working with me on and guiding and, and feeding back and saying they would collaborate in, uh, in the proposal, but they, su they supported my submission of the proposal with SFU administering it and, and sort of helping okay. to co-lead. So we initiated the proposal, we received the funding, and we were so happy that year because we actually then split off the province into four sectors. Each of the regional representatives of their area was then welcome to coordinate uh, week-long 
recruitment sessions within their region. And okay. all of the participants that of the four regions were invited to participate, but we also opened up the invitation to all other post-secondary institutes in British Columbia to attend these coordinated on-reserve um, recruitment fairs that we had for weeks, uh, for a week-long fair in each area. We allocated uh, the funds. Each institution paid for their recruiters to attend the events. Um, the funding actually went to uh, things such as ensuring that uh, there was a cultural person helping to open the event in Honoraria, ensuring that there was food provided at the event, and ensuring that the um, there was also uh, like like incentives and uh, little gifts for students who participated. So we'd have uh, we'd encourage the students to meet with the recruiters at the recruitment fair, ask questions, but not just do the usual stamp and walk away. We were trying to really get the kids to engage. And the recruiters that participated were all Indigenous. They were people that had attended universities and colleges. And really, we personalized it by sharing our stories with the communities before we went into the career fair. And so the students in the communities and the community members themselves could really see these are Indigenous people that have gone to university or colleges, and this is something I can do. And we were very proud of that work. We, we successfully um, did a number of workshops all over British Columbia that year. We also used a portion of the funds to put out a little booklet. Um, and the booklet was our recruitment materials, but it was collaboratively done. And that's another cool thing about the initiative was all of the recruiters were working together. Our goal wasn't to say we are going to be the one that's going to get the students to come to us. Our goal was to help to ensure that the learner was being directed to the best institution for what they wanted to learn. So it really took away that competitive kind of edge right, between institutions. Yeah. It was really collaborative in our unified shared goal to help ensure Indigenous young students were able to get the key information and hopefully build a better learning and understanding of what they need to get into college or university because I felt that was a gap. Amazing. And I, I mean, what a legacy. Is it... It's still going today. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, like, over a decade later, I'm so proud. Yeah, that is, and thanks for saying that. It's actually one of the projects I'm most, I'm really proud to have been involved in that. Um, And I'm really proud it's still happening today. We also opened up the door for that uh, initiative to be including kids starting at grade 8. Because what we know is that many Indigenous students at that time, um, by the point of grade 10, had opted out of continuing on to grade 11 or grade 12. So we wanted to reach out to those youth a lot earlier because standard recruitment would only see kids that were in grade 11 and 12. By that time, many Indigenous students might have actually walked away. So if we started talking to them a little earlier, it might help to plant a seed a little earlier about options that are available later. That just sounds remarkable and so impressive. I'm so pleased it's still um, going so strongly. Happy about it too. I uh, after I left SFU, I was really lucky to work in uh, um, a couple of different areas, and some involved some national tables for Indigenous education. And um, I was surprised to learn that this was not something that was happening across Canada. Mm. And I think it, it really is a, a positive. I, I'm not sure where it is at now, but at the time, people were really insi- excited about this Indigenous-led, Indigenous-initiated, uh, and and Indigenous-managed approach to how do we get our students and our communities to learn more about post-secondary and I believe that's why it was so successful. Well I'm also glad that you brought up some of the other spaces that you've worked in outside of SFU because I also did some LinkedIn creeping and (laughs) holy smokes Marcia do you have some diverse experiences. Um, So after you so you were at SFU and then you left for a little bit to work with in the The office of Oh, just, yeah, tell me where you were working after your first uh, stint at SFU. I left SFU only actually on a secondment to go work with a provincial organization called the First Nations Education Steering Committee, which is a provincial organization in British Columbia uh, with the mandate to help support uh, Indigenous learners, basically on reserve K-12 learners, is their key original mandate, I would say. They have expanded out also. They they do a lot of work with uh, Indigenous post-secondary institutions, um, uh, early learners. So they've definitely got a huge mandate. They're doing some amazing work there. So um, they learned of the work I think I was doing at Strengthening Connections and wanted to help to have me help them with an initiative to help promote teacher training to Indigenous learners. So that's the six months secondment I went to them with. Uh, and at the end of the secondment, uh, basically, it, it, I, 
you know, it turned out that I ended up uh, having more work to do with them, and I ended up staying on with them for uh, about three or four years, and 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 took uh, I, I left SFU. Um, and then after that, I went on to where did I go after that? I think I went to work briefly on I can't get the order straight in my mind, but I did work for a while with the BC Assembly of First Nations um, to help support the new regional chief. Um, who's uh, all in the news right now? Uh, um, the Honorable Minister Jody Wilson Raybould. Uh, right, right, okay. In her office for six months helped with her transition team, and then I went back into doing some consulting work and um, did some work helping uh, work to build a uh, provincial, or sorry, a, uh, a community uh, network amongst early childhood providers um, in the Vancouver Sea to Sky Corridor. And was there, and I don't know if I read this right, were you um, in an elected position at some yes. point? Yes, actually, that is correct. This is where it gets all (laughs) the layers and overlap. So I decided, uh, partially inspired by just working in the area of BC Assembly First Nations and watching and learning from, you know, the politics and Indigenous politics and and how communities work together, I decided uh, to put my name forward to run for, uh, to be a representative for the Nishkalism's government and um, my nation. And um, we have a number of of, uh, community organizations that are located within our nation. There's four communities in our nation. And then we have a number of urban uh, locations, and those urban locations also have representation of elected officials. Okay. So I ran for um, the Vancouver local, and I actually served for three years to help be the, um, uh, I guess we'd equi- the equivalency would be the vice president of the organization um, and uh, a WSN member attending meetings in the north and representing our community and Vancouver community of population of, of 1,400 people in Vancouver and the Vancouver Island area and programs and services services for our urban community members. And so I was really honored to, to do that work and enter the political world in a more official way um, for that time. It yeah. Was a wonderful opportunity. What was that like? I feel like the world of kind of elected um, politics must be super complex. It, it I mean, it, it is. And especially in the times that we're at in Canada, I would have to say, it certainly is a different landscape now, but I mean, we're talking about, um, you know, the lives of our community members and, you know, in many ways, similar to our goals as student uh, people supporting the educational advancement of people. Uh, it's, you know, how do we help support community wellness and well-being and economic opportunities and provide programming that is relevant to those community members. Um, at the time, you know, uh, you know, the big, and, and, and still to this day, uh, the issues are around resource development, accessing the lens, and, you know, the division that happens amongst many Canadians and many First Nations people alike uh, with regard to having differing opinions on, on resource development and, and the use of the lens. So that was a really hot topic while I was in the political world um, and pipelines. And I'm from Northern British Columbia. Um, where uh, there is uh, opportunities at this time for pipelines and uh, natural gas pipelines, and and also there's a lot of challenges with regard to local economies and stability with with not enough jobs. So it's a very challenging conversations, but also really rewarding to sit and be with community and talk to community and and try to represent community and try to bring programming for community. One of the cool things we did in that was we also wrote a proposal while I was an elected member and we uh, we managed to get some funding together to help bring uh, fluent and uh, well-respected uh, Anishka language instructor to travel 1,800 kilometers to Vancouver because what uh, our community members really wanted was to learn our traditional language. And I myself am a generational survivor of the residential schools. My parents and grandparents all attended residential schools. I myself did not, but I certainly uh, have seen the impact of, of that generational impact on many of our lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly for me, uh, I am not fluent in my initial language, but 
I was very happy to see the community interest in uh, many people in uh, the generations uh, of, you know, the 20s and 30s and 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds wanting to learn the language. So we wrote a proposal um, and we managed to uh, successfully uh, deliver a program where we brought a language instructor down and uh, from 1,800 kilometers away uh, with some programming around it and to fly back and forth over a certain time frame and to help our community um, learn uh, the initial learn what they needed to learn or learn um, the introductory level of their language and and I was thrilled to be a part of that. And I was doing a bit of searching around, and it seems like, is this also some of the program that where parts were recorded? Because I feel like there's an online database where there's some Nishka yeah, words. Yeah, that is, yeah, that, that, there's some really cool work in that that had nothing to do with the stuff I did. Okay. There, there's <laughs> some really, really cool work. Uh, there's the First People's Language, uh, which is a portal available in British Columbia um, that anyone can search, and a variety of... Um, nations and their linguists and their elders and their educators have worked to document and to um, uh, categorize and to make accessible their language. And so um, that's one of the great initiatives I think that we all need to support in terms of language preservation and revitalization and be innovative. So um, those kinds of uh, you know, so many Indigenous people live in urban areas and live away from their communities. So, you know, the challenges are how do we have access to fluent speakers? And uh, typically they're not in the urban areas. So what are the innovative ways we can use technology to keep that knowledge alive and to transfer that knowledge to people who are willing to learn it? Wow, well, it's very innovative, very, very cool. It's a cool website to explore for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, go ahead. I was just going to add one <laughs> thing. We actually, just on that same uh, line of uh, thought with, uh, with the Indigenous Student Centre, one year with some external funding that we received, I was really happy to hear that our students were really keen on learning how to introduce themselves in their languages. As you may be well aware, like all other populations across Canada, our student population, our Indigenous student population at SFU is extremely diverse. So the language, uh, the languages that they're all over, they're from all over Canada for the Indigenous students, the Indigenous students. So the, the idea was how can we deliver and bring in um, people who can help teach language to students. So we managed to receive the funding. We actually then did a survey out to the students and said, we've heard you, we know you want to learn your language, let us know, here's a list, or let us know which languages you, you, you want to learn. And then we surveyed them, we found out, you know, uh, we picked uh, the, what we could find that had clusters of more than one student. And then we, then we went out to go see if we could find speakers of that language. And we, we were able to successfully bring in, um, I think it was about four or five different speakers from different areas um, to help uh, offer language. Um, one, day, one time it was a one-day workshop. Um, other days it was uh, an ongoing weekend workshops and uh, students were introduced to some concepts of the language and uh, one of our students actually said she now can get up and fully introduce herself in, in, in Cree language um, because of the, of the Cree speaker we brought in who helped our students with learning their language. It sounds amazing. It sounds... Yeah, it was, it was amazing, but you know, it was one of those projects that I got and I'm like, okay, I've got the money, but now how do I make this work? And how do we figure this puzzle out? Because really, it's not like finding an English teacher, you know, there's, right. there's going to be 10 yeah. million English teachers to pick from, right? But how many Cree uh, teachers, language teachers are A, available, and B, um, uh, willing to teach or have the time to teach? Um, and um, and willing to come and work with us on kind of an innovative programming idea. And it was not for credit. It was all just basically, you know, come for the experience. Um, but, you know, the, we had great people come in, and it was, it was really fun to watch and really, really cool to see our students kind of grow in their own because many of our students are also at varying levels of their Indigenous identity. And uh, we, we welcome those students, and we welcome all students because we meet students where they're at, and we don't impose anything on our students. Um, and we 
appreciate that some students are, are very connected to their cultural um, awareness of who they are and where they come from, and, and many other students might be at the very beginning of that journey of exploring and learning their Indigenous heritage and identity, and, and, and we, we want to make sure that everybody feels welcome. So I, I'm curious to know what you think the next few years will look like for you and your center. So I think um, in my, um, it, it looks like there's some momentum on our campuses, especially with the, since 2015 around mm-hmm. like some of the recommendations that um, have come out of the TRC work. Mm-hmm. But I also know that that can be um, uh, loaded. Um, but I also yeah. just wanted to ask for, for your work in terms yeah. of uh, your center and your passion. Where do you see this going in the next couple of years? That's a really great question because SFU actually has embarked upon a journey for reconciliation. So I'm going to say probably two years ago, our president um, pulled together uh, and the VP academic pulled together a committee to look at uh, and address, actually it was the president's office, sorry, to pull together a committee to uh, start to look at how SFU is going to respond to the calls to action. And so this, I was very fortunate to sit on that committee and we uh, worked together for approximately 16 months and um, it was co-chaired by one of our SFU Indigenous Board of Governors, Mr. Chris Lewis from the Squamish Nation and uh, the Dean of Education, um, Chris Magnuson. Um, And we did some work and we embarked upon some community consultations with SFU staff, students, and outside community. And we gathered that information and it was put together in a report that was officially handed over to our president in a uh, Coast Salish ceremony that was led by Coast Salish peoples. And um, uh, the commitment has also involved a a $9 million um, funding allocation for three years to help advance reconciliation efforts at SFU overall. We are, um, we have three campuses, so um, that's a big undertaking. We're a fairly large institution, and um, in there, there's quarterly updates happening, the work is ongoing, um, but in terms of the center here, one of the outcomes is that some funding has been allocated to the expansion of the Indigenous Student Center. Um, we are quite, uh, uh, we have a space that is like, a, it, it isn't like, it is a community, and it's a community space for Indigenous students. It's a safe space where students have told us they feel that this is a space they can come to and sometimes take a bit of a respite break from some of the experiences they're having in classrooms that may not be culturally sensitive, okay. or sometimes being in conversations or being in uh, subjected to reading materials that are assigned that may not be comfortable or reflect uh, the colonial history of Canada and uh, some of the students that we've worked with here say coming to this space is a space where they just get to take a break from that and be in a community environment and so we have a super high level of engagement with our students and uh, we have computer space where students can access computers print materials off study space but it's all in one sort of common area and so um, and all of our programming that comes out of here with our staff members uh, we've we've had to crunch one student area and make it into an office. Um, so we are literally uh, needing more space. And so right. one of the outcomes of the reconciliation was that the allocation was made to expanding our space. So in the next six months to a year, we're we're being moved to a temporary space. Our space will be renovated and be expanded. Um, so that's a very practical issue. And and you know the questions come up on how do we help to ensure we're moving this community and how do I help to make sure that this community stays a safe community space in an interim area. So I think that's an interesting dynamic to think about because um, when student engagement is something that we all think about and work about as university professionals and in some areas it may not be as easy to have a student engagement and and we literally have a strong thriving community here Mm. and we have students that want to come and hang out at our center on the weekends and we want to have students that want to come out and hang out and do programming later in the evenings. Uh, we are only open right now um, during the workday, um, and we looked forward to the opportunity of how do we creatively and safely have the space open 24 hours a day. Mm. But we can't have staffing here 24 hours a day. So 
you know, all of our offices are literally sitting around and circling student space. And that's also, I think, slightly different than um, other student service spaces I see on our campus um, in terms of, you know, student engagement and thinking about what that looks like. Can a student walk into your door right now or do they have to go through receptionist? Do they have to make an appointment? Do they have 24 hours access to that space? You know, how do they, how do students get to sit and be with a student service professional? And that, I think, is a really interesting conversation moving forward. Um, but in terms of our space, I, I hope to see us continue to expand our programming. Um, I hope to see us continue to build and enrich our student community. And I hope to see our students, you know, um, I'd love to see us develop a student leadership program, mm. which is grounded and, and connected within Indigenous um, diverse viewpoints and philosophies and, and spiritual connections and cultural connections. And in terms of reconciliation as an overall concept, I think it's really important that this journey is underway, but I also see that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot, we're all at varying degrees of understanding our Canadian colonial history, and, and I'm mindful of not oversaturating Indigenous populations and or students with questions about being the one student that's Indigenous in the classroom and then the whole classroom turning to that student when sure. everything Indigenous comes up and expecting that student to speak to it. And that's something I've I heard about when I was a student. That was part of what motivated me for my, my master's way back when. And it's certainly still what I hear today to the students that I serve. So, you know, in many ways we've come a long way, but in many ways there's there's still a lot of things happening out there. I'm like, I have to think back, like, this, this is what we went through 20 years ago. You know, when and how are we going to improve this? Right, there's still, still so much work we have to do. Yeah, I think cultural competencies are really important. I think that uh, land acknowledgements are very important, but I think it's also really important to not look at reconciliation like it's a checkbox activity. Um, you know, you know, there's there's really good intent from so many people. I think when we work in higher education and when we're in student support, we really are. I, I would I think people that really want to help support students, and I think that's a really wonderful um, career uh, choice. However, I think it's really important to also recognize and appreciate that there's, you know, um, a lot of philosophies out there that need to recognize the importance of having Indigenous leadership um, at every level within institutions and within every decision-making level of institutions, not only, you know, um, at the senior administrative level, but also at the presidential level, at the Board of Governors level, at the Senate level, uh, at the VP level, and also at the front-end, you know, uh, clerk level. The visibility of having Indigenous people throughout the entire institution is a goal I'd like to see all of Canada achieve in the work that we do, because we're still not there yet, and we still need to make sure that human resources policies and practices are 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 supportive of, of including and being aware of the importance of Indigenous and diversity on campuses all over. I think, yeah, we need this whole systems look at what we're doing to make sure that we're in the right direction and going where we need to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It can't just be a one-off thing or a checkbox no. thing. Yeah. 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 And I think, I think there's a lot of well-intended folks out there and I, I see this all the time. I also see people that are really trying to do the work, but for some of our settler allies, they don't even know where to start because it feels so overwhelming, right? They don't want to, inf- they don't want to, they, they don't want to, um, insult anyone or, or cause more harm and they don't want to do something that's politically incorrect but it's like where do I even start yeah and because it is it's a painful history there's a lot of the history of Canada that is very difficult to look at in terms of the policies and practices towards indigenous people but I think in that same vein it's also really important to also recognize embrace and hold up the resilience and the strength of indigenous peoples and the cultures that still today are working to thrive, that are thriving. I see a cultural resurgence amongst young people right now that anytime I see a young indigenous student, or sorry, a young indigenous person that's openly singing and drumming and dancing their culture, I just see incredible resiliency of our ancestors that weren't allowed to do that in the last 50 years that were actually banned from practicing cultural practices. And to see how it's still thriving today is a testament to the strength of those of our, of our people. Absolutely. Oh. 
Marcia, I feel like I could just talk with you all day, but I <laughs> I know that it's uh, kind of getting into mid-afternoon um, out, in, out in British Columbia, so maybe I'll just get into our kind of final rapid-fire questions. Sounds good. Um, they're a little bit uh, less complicated than some of the other questions I had. Um, no problem. Well, maybe, perhaps. Let's see. Uh, favorite food? <laughs> favorite food? Salmon. salmon. Wild West Coast salmon. Okay. Uh, last book you read? Oh, um, Marie Kondo. Oh, how did that go? Uh, <laughs> well, if you look at my office right now, didn't, uh, not as great as it could have gone, but if you look at uh, some of my cupboards at home, a little better, I think. Yeah, it's definitely, yeah, got rid of a lot of things that don't necessarily spark joy in my office, but I yeah, mean, right? sometimes our work involves things that don't spark joy and we have to keep it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Marcia, do you have any nicknames? Nothing that I will share on this podcast. Fair enough. <laughs> They're actually traditional, so I do have a, it's, it's not, so this is not a nickname, but I have a traditional Nishka name, and then I have some other names that would be, I guess, from my family that are traditional I don't even know. Yeah, childhood names. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your superpower? Hmm. Collaborating, I think. Okay. Um, do you have a, a favorite or a few favorite teachers? Dr. Dara Colhane uh, was an incredible instructor and friend and colleague uh, who helped me find my voice. When I first entered college, I was not, I was a shy, quiet, never spoke in the classroom person. When I entered SFU, I was the same way, and then something transformed in one of her classrooms where she created that space that was safe for me, and quite literally, is, I've never shut up since. Well, we're all better for it, I think, so thanks, she's, shout out, um, that's amazing. She's amazing, yeah, she's amazing. Um, if you were to create and host a podcast... What would it be about? I would actually really be interested in creating a podcast for Indigenous students to share their diverse experiences and their brilliance and their amazing ideas and a space for their voice. I think that would be incredible. Oh, and do you, what would it be called, do you think? I would probably look towards uh, a traditional word that would mean something, uh, because there's so many different languages in Canada, Right. Uh, which language do you pick? But if there was a dream opportunity to pick something that talks about um, our resilience, our culture, our ancestors, and our vision. I would listen to that. That sounds amazing. Um, so what is, this is the second last question. What is something people might be surprised to know about you? segregated canning community in the summertime in northern British Columbia. Okay. And I had a very successful ice cream business in that little community as a child. Oh. (laughs) That's so entrepreneurial of you. (laughs) I thought so. It was really, really uh, lucrative, actually, I have to share. It was, yeah, my dad was really cool at uh, helping to let me think outside the box and totally supported me getting a a business license and I made my Dairyland orders and oh yeah and it was it was also an isolated little community that was about half an hour away from the main town so okay yeah it was a beautiful little place and how old were you when you were starting this business <laughs> um I think I was not old enough to work so I would have been probably like in a business I think I was probably about 14, 15. That is so cool. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so the last question, which is kind of the whole premise of the podcast, is mm-hmm. um, who should we interview next? So you are ah. a very... Um, not everyone is doubly nominated. So we, you got nominated from us from Aaron Biddlecombe and Tracy Mason-Innes. So um, who Two would you, amazing colleagues. 
colleagues I'm so proud to work with. So oh. that's very, I'm very grateful to both of them. That's two, amazing. Yeah, two incredible colleagues. Yeah, so amazing. Totally. So who, yeah. who do you think we should be, um, whose door do you think we should be knocking on for our next round of interviews? Okay, so I've thought about a couple of people. So I think that I would think about one person that I've worked with uh, who works here in the center. Her name is Melody Marco. Okay. And she is one of our student life coordinators, and she's done some work in post-secondary institutes in both Ontario and in three different institutes in British Columbia. Okay. And she's pretty amazing. And another individual that I think would be amazing is Dr. Rick Ouellette, and he's the director at Langara College. Okay. And uh, Janice Simcoe, she is also, I believe, the director at Camosun on Vancouver Island. Janice has done some incredible work uh, across the decades in helping to create uh, student service supports uh, within Indigenous, Indigenous student supports uh, across British Columbia and supporting that initiative across uh, building a network for all of us to work together in BC. That sound, those sound amazing. I, yeah, this, I love doing these podcasts cause I get to interview people and have conversations who, um, I might not necessarily have an excuse to connect with for like 50 minutes. So, mm-hmm. uh, thank you for those suggestions. I, I <laughs> can't wait. Well, thank you. I mean, you've done an amazing job. You made this, I was quite nervous, but you've done an amazing job and it's like been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it also. So thank you. Thank you so much, Marsha. I appreciate your time. Yeah, and uh, just so you know, it's snowing like crazy in Vancouver right now, so uh, it's been an interesting day to sit here and watch the snow, um, and yeah, so I'm sure you get a lot of that in Toronto, but uh, you know, oh my here goodness. is, it's, it's quite something today, we've got this, if you go into SFU webcam, you'll see what we're dealing with right now, it's quite something. Oh gosh, okay, well stay warm, stay <laughs> safe. Thank you, and thanks for the time today, I really appreciate it. Thank you, I'm so grateful. Okay, take care. All right, bye. bye. That was good. Good, right? <laughs> yeah, that was great, Adam. Um, I'm so grateful that Marsha made the time and that we were able to have the conversation. I really, like Aaron and Tracy, learned a lot from, from our conversation. want to do a shout out to Marsha on Twitter if you want to follow her. Um, at Guno, G-U-N-O underscore Marsha, M-A-R-C-I-A. And Nadia, if people wanted to connect with you on Twitter, how might they do that? Follow me at, at NadsRoses. And Adam, what's yours? Um, at Adam Kewen. Don't forget the hashtag Relay Essay. And last but not least, we want to thank our dear friend Adrian Ross for the theme song for the show. And thanks for listening to our season premiere of <laughs> season six. Uh, and thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.